You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Joel Mokir, who is a professor of both economics and history at Northwestern University, also the author of lots and lots of books, some of which I have with me. A classic one from many years ago is called The Lever of Riches, Technological Creativity and Economic Progress. There's another lot of books on economic history of England, including this one called The Enlightened Economy, Economic History of Britain, 1700 to 1850. And then this also is a classic, The Gifts of Athena, Historical Origins of the Knowledge Economy. And I think the most recent book is Culture of Growth, The Origins of the Modern Economy. Welcome, Joel. Hello. So listen, when I was in graduate school, I split my time between economic history and intellectual history, and I couldn't decide which one was more interesting. And I thought there's got to be a way to, to do both. Maybe that's something you got to wait till later in your career to do, but you manage to carve out a niche that overlaps with both of these disciplines. And indeed, some people think it's a mere coincidence that the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution happened right around the same time. But you argue that it's not a coincidence and that these things are related. Now, I remember when I was studying economic history back in the day, there was this thing called the big push theory of growth, where it was just a matter of increasing the amount of capital. And this also carried over into development policy, which was, oh yeah, build some big dams and magic things will happen. And then we got this stuff called endogenous growth theory, where people said, actually, it's, it, there's this thing called technology, and this is probably doing a lot of the work. It's changing the production function. But for those folks, I mean, it's kind of like a black box. And I think what you've done is you've tried to crack open the black box and figure out what exactly is driving technological change. And you point the finger at science and the creation of knowledge. So Joel, I mean, how hard is it to be conversant in both economic history and intellectual history and history of science? Remember, these are huge fields, okay? So I have no pretensions whatsoever to uh, know everything that that people do who do intellectual history, okay? So don't expect me to have long disquisitions about Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and Kierkegaard because that's way above my pay grade. What I'm interested in, and this is stated much at the beginning of each of those books that you mentioned, so I'm interested in something that I call useful knowledge, which is really a term I borrowed from 18th century writers. And it's a bit misleading because not all useful knowledge is useful in some standard sense of the word. And some forms of knowledge that I don't include are useful, like, you know, legal knowledge or economics. But basically what I'm thinking about is this kind of combination of science and technology and particularly the interaction between them and the back and forth between people who know things and people who make things. And that interaction, I think, is a little bit underplayed by my colleagues who are writing about this. I thought that was a gap that needed to be filled, which I did in these books, because it isn't so much that other societies, earlier societies in Europe, say, or, or societies outside of Europe, that they had no technology. Of course they did, and they had science. What was missing is the combination of the two. And that, I think, turns out to be truly important. And of course, that is precisely why I think that what happens in the late 17th and early 18th century 
is really sort of opening the gates toward continued technological progress. Because that is, I think, when people realized that if you wanted to make progress, particularly economic progress or progress in material life, that you really needed to augment what they called useful knowledge. And they didn't have much of an explicit model of how to do that. But I think it was sensed that this is a combination that really would pull their societies ahead. And as I point out in the culture of growth, the first one to really see this quite clearly is Francis Bacon. And it's interesting to look at Francis Bacon as an intellectual because in her own age, she's regarded as somewhat second rate and can't really measure up with real giants of that age like Spinoza and Descartes and so on. But in the 18th century, at the time of the Enlightenment, he was absolutely admired, and not just in England, where he was, of course, spent his entire life, but also in France and in other parts of Europe, because all of Enlightenment Europe realized that he was the pioneering in pointing out that this is the way forward. And I find that particularly striking because at the time that Bacon was writing, you know, science was the kind of modern science that just barely embryonic, I would say, or pre-embryonic, whatever that means. So he overlapped in time-wise with people like Galileo and Kepler, but he really couldn't even imagine the kind of work that Newton and his followers would do a generation or two later. So what happened is that these Baconians that came after his death basically wrote what is now regarded to be the Baconian program. And the Baconian program is the idea of harnessing science and I would say other things as well, like applied mathematics and things of that nature, to what you and I would call production. And when I mean production, it's not just manufacturing, it's agriculture, it's services, it's navigation, it's a whole bunch of things. But basically the idea is nature provides us with regularities and with laws and with phenomena. And we should study those not just to illustrate the greatness of the creator, as people believed in the Middle Ages, or just because it's a nice form of entertainment for ritzy people who have nothing better to do, like Aristotle and people in ancient Greece. We should study those because it could become useful. We could find ways of applying it. And I'm always struck by the fact that given how little they knew, it's like the science of chemistry, for instance, didn't really exist in in any shape or form until the late 18th century with the Lavoisier revolution. But people knew actually very little, and yet they had this idea in their mind that this knowledge could be harnessed for material improvement, material progress. And that is really a very striking thing, European culture. Without that, I firmly believe, in the end, nothing like the Industrial Revolution would have ever happened. And the fact of the matter is that you look at other societies, which were in many ways equally sophisticated or more sophisticated than Europe. Yeah, it's often the way India and the Middle East, these were all societies in which there were a lot of intellectuals running around, a lot of smart people were writing books, but none of them hit upon this fundamental idea. And that, I think, at the danger of sounding Eurocentric, that is, I think, the special characteristics that Europe brought to the game. And eventually, all other societies on this planet had to follow the European example, because that is clearly the path toward 
sustained economic progress that you cannot get any other way. Well, I agree with you. Francis Bacon is someone I had to read when I was doing intellectual history back in the 80s. And I was always really impressed with the precociousness of what he was arguing. You make a distinction, and I think many people make this distinction, between what you call omega knowledge and lambda knowledge, which is really episteme and techne or science and technology or theoretical and empirical. There's a bunch of different ways that you can categorize this. But I guess for a lot of people, they see science as a process of trial and error, a process of tinkering. They see practitioners as being capable of adopting techniques and routines without understanding the scientific principles behind it. And I guess you could tell a story of the growth and expansion and diffusion of knowledge that had no underlying kind of theoretical framework. And I think your point is that without that, the growth is not only going to be slow, but it's going to be sporadic and it's going to run into diminishing returns. And when I was reading this, you mentioned a gazillion innovations. One you didn't mention was the cure to scurvy. But I always thought about that because you say that if one person on the planet knows it, then it is part of the human body of knowledge. But there are people that knew that fruit helped you with scurvy, but it took hundreds of years before it became widespread consensus. And I think your point is that if you have an underlying theory, whether it's germ theory or understanding of vitamins, that's what allows it to really stick and diffuse. So why can't just winning routines diffuse? Like if something works, why don't people just copy it? Why do we need to have some... Classic example, for instance, is water power. So people use water power. Water power is first observed, at least in the Western world, in the first century BC, and the Middle Ages are full of water mills and a little bit later windmills. So people use water mills all along. And some of them were fairly good ones. But they never understood the principles of hydraulics until these were worked out in the 18th century by a bunch of French mathematicians and British experimentalists. Once you have the basic understanding of hydraulics, and this is one of the first applications, by the way, of the new calculus that was invented in the 17th century, you can make them more and more efficient and you can make them work better. And of course, without this underlying science, you cannot couple water power with electricity generation, okay? because to generate electricity, you know, that's unlikely to happen unless you have some kind of concept of the basic laws of electricity. And so I can see a world full of water mills. I have a harder time understanding a world of, say, hydraulic elect electricity generators without the work of people like Alessandro Volta and Ampere and, you know, sort of standard people that we associate with the evolution of electricity. And so I would never, ever have say that you can't have technological progress without understanding the basic scientific principles, or else most medieval technology based on either no understanding at all or essentially things that were bogus. So I think one of the examples I like to give to my students is this. Ever since antiquity, it was understood that if you collect animal dung, and I should add human dung, and spread it on the fields, you're going to get a better crop, right? So people fertilize fields. This is in antiquity. Now, nobody has a clue 
as to why that works. The most widespread hypothesis is that the smell of the dung chases away evil spirits that damage your crop. Okay, so this is what people believed, if they thought about it at all. But basically, they just fertilized their field because of what their fathers told them, and their fathers did it because their fathers told them, and on and on and on. And then in the 1830s and 1840s, a bunch of Germans sit them out at a place called Gießen and start working out why does fertilizer actually work the way it does. And in the process, they develop something called oil chemistry, which is a branch of organic chemistry, which they were working on. And by the end of the century, all of a sudden, they start realizing, you know, so, you know, what exactly it is that things like nitrates and phosphates are doing to the soil in terms of soil chemistry. Now, I'm not saying they fully understand it. They, we never fully understand anything, okay? It's, but there is a ranking of, do you know more or less? You know, and after people like Wehler and von Liebig working in the 1840s, people knew more about soil chemistry. And as a result, we see a huge explosion of agricultural productivity as people start using this stuff in a more systematic and appropriate way. And I think that is true across the board. Knowledge isn't absolutely essential for certain techniques. And for others, that's not the case. I don't think anybody would ever build a nuclear reactor through tinkering and trial and error, right? You've got to know something about nuclear physics or else you wouldn't even start the project. And some things are like that. But some things are purely serendipitous. You mentioned scurvy, and that's an excellent example. Another one, which I'm very fond of, is the vaccination against smallpox. Yeah. Famous story. Now, Jenner, he didn't know anything about viruses. He knew nothing about immunology, T-cells, B-cells. What he knew was this worked. And as purely sort of trial and error, and every once in a while when you do enough trial and error, you hit the jackpot, as Jenner did. In fact, he hit the jackpot literally because he got a prize from British Parliament for 30,000 pounds, which was a huge fortune in those days. And he became something of a celebrity. <laughs> But nobody knew why this stuff worked, and nobody did until a century later, when finally people like Paul Ehrlich start working on something that we would today call immunology. And then people start understanding it. And once you have that worked out, then more seeing what you can vaccinate against and what you cannot vaccinate against, and people start creating some order there. And without that evolution for a century and a half almost of that field, we would never have been able to do what we did over the last three years, which is come up with a vaccine <laughs> against COVID that is effective, cheap, and has minimum side effects. That kind of thing you cannot do if you have to experiment. And that's the kind of way I see things. So it isn't like no progress is possible. Mm -hmm. Just that the more you know, the faster the progress is. And what's more, if you don't know the principles, you don't know what will not work. And so people don't realize how much intellectual capital was wasted over the century by people trying to build things that can't be done, like perpetuum mobilis, okay, or alchemy. Or alchemy yeah. you know? So Newton apparently wrote millions of words on alchemy and trying to figure out how you could turn these base metals into gold and so on and so forth. The brightest man of his generation basically missed his talents in order to do something which he didn't know couldn't be done. Now, we still 
Of course, work on things that can't be done because we don't know everything there is to know. And as I keep telling my students, we, we sort of make fun of the chemistry and physics of, of 1500. But in terms of, I think, economic progress, it's hard to imagine that we would have been able to do what we did had it not be, been that the what I call the epistemic base of these technologies was developed by people who we would think of as scientists okay so here's a classic example which i think is really drives it home so people start building steam engines in the early 18th century so they knew something because if you don't know anything at all like aristotle couldn't have built a steam engine because he didn't understand that a vacuum is possible remember he said nature abhors a vacuum but nor did he realize the existence of an atmosphere so once you have the possibility of a vacuum and you have the knowledge that there is an atmosphere that uh, we're living at the bottom of the atmosphere, then a steam engine becomes feasible. Now, the atmosphere wasn't really discovered until 1643, and so after that, the steam engine becomes feasible. But what is interesting is that people did not know why and how a steam engine worked until the evolution of thermodynamics in the middle of the 19th century. Once you have that, you can build not only better and better steam engines, and people did but you can also start thinking about other types of engines, like internal combustion engines, and so on and so forth. And so the relationship between science and technology in that regard is subtle and complicated, and it, it's symmetrical, it's got both directions. But I would say if it hadn't been for the continuous attempts of people to learn more about natural regularities and laws, we would have gotten stuck. And we would have ended up at sort of a dead-end in terms of economic development and technological progress. I'm convinced of that. So you, you could debate when and where science becomes important. And there's a lot of, there's a serious literature about this. Okay? And the answer is, it all depends on the industry that you're looking at. And so there are certain things you can do that tinkerers and people who are good with their hands can carry out without understanding any of the science. Think about airplanes. I said, that's another example I like to use. So. People, until the Wright brothers flew in 1903, the consensus among most scientists, not all, but most scientists, was that heavier than air machines were unrealistic. They couldn't work because the physics basically was against it. That was the consensus. And then these guys flew it and they showed it could be done and then you know, a whole bunch of people did it after them. And so the scientists go back and say, you know what, we should stick again about the physics of airplanes, and then, you know, one would expect it was the Germans who did most of the sort of heavy lifting in the math, particularly a guy called Prankl, uh, who essentially developed aerodynamics as we understand today. Once you have that, you can take these machines that the Wright brothers built and make them faster, make them larger, and eventually we have what we have today. So it isn't that the science drove the technology, it's that the science drove the this technology drove the science, the science drove the technology some more, the technology drives the science a little bit more. It, it's a co-evolutionary process. And what you get in the co-evolutionary process, you get positive feedback. If you have enough positive feedback, growth begets you more growth. And knowledge gets you more knowledge. That's the case, then I can admit, because there's no reason for this process to ever converge to something that we economists would think of as an equilibrium. My learned colleague, Robert Gordon, who, you know, has written a book that a lot of people have read and in which he basically proclaims in the last chapters 
that essentially, because we can never reinvent something that's already been invented, technological progress is going to come slow down and eventually peter out. And I think that's utterly wrong. I think we just basically scratched the surface. And in technology and science of 200 years is as unimaginable to us as our science would be to somebody living at the time of Francis Bacon and Galileo. So you make in the books a lot of comparisons between cultural and scientific evolution or the evolution of knowledge and Darwinian evolution. And there's some loose comparisons, right? So you talk about the phenotype, genotype distinction. But of course, there are serious limitations. If there is evolution happening, it's much more Lamarckian than Darwinian. Could you talk a bit about what are some of the parallels between biological evolution and the evolution of knowledge? Last week, I gave a long talk about that to a bunch of people called the Darwin Club in, in England. And I made that point, which you just made, which is that, you know, that clearly this is the Lamarckian rather than Darwinian. And one member of the audience pointed out quite correctly, of course, that Darwin was Lamarckian. That is what we call Darwinian really isn't Darwinian. It's really neo-Darwinian in which we have this sort of very narrow Weismannian barrier in which, you know, characteristics that are acquired over a lifetime are not passed on to the next generation. And of course, that's not true. And there are lots of ways in which biological evolution differs from cultural evolution. But I think the consensus today that, you know, that people like Jeffrey Hodgson and myself and a bunch of other people are making is that evolutionary models are larger than Charles Darwin or than August Weissman or even larger than Richard Dawkins. But they are useful for many reasons. But for me, the most important thing is that much like biological evolution, it sort of strikes a middle path between things that are in some sense inevitable or destiny and things that are completely random. And that history is neither fluke nor necessity, as Jacques Monod once put it. You know, but that it forces us to emphasize that not everything that happened had to happen, and not everything that didn't happen couldn't have happened. And that the path of history that we are observing is one of thousands and thousands and thousands that are perfectly reasonable and could have happened, but didn't because, you know, circumstances accidentally, if you want, pointed it into another direction. I think that, I think, is quite important to realize. The other point that I think where evolution comes in useful, and I could go on about this for an hour, but there's something that I find incredibly fascinating about evolution and both biological and historical, and that is the question if there is progress. And there is a subdivision between people who, like the late Stephen Jay Gould, for instance, who you know, denied vehemently that there's any possibility of progress, but there are others who actually see progress. And I think history, is, it, this is something that history should look at, because the one thing that I think we learn from evolution is that progress is multidimensional and that it's possible to attain progress in one direction and not in another. For instance, one of the things that is, seems to be like a biological irregularity, if not a law, is what's known as Cope's Law. And Cope's Law in biology basically says that organisms have a way of getting larger over time, over the evolutionary path. 
And this has been widely observed for a whole bunch of organisms. I don't know what the state of the art of that is because I'm not a biologist, but that is something that I read in the days in which I taught myself the basics here. And I think this is true for history as well. And what I'm really thinking of is if you look at the people who first seriously started thinking about what we mean by progress, that is, of course, people in the Enlightenment, most of them who actually strongly believed in it. And they actually thought that as that there's something perfectible about humans and about human society. And part of that was going to be technological progress. So we accumulate more knowledge, science, technology, engineering, chemistry, medicine, whatever. And the more we know, the more we can control nature. And in that regard, there is progress. And I think that's true. They also felt that because of this, clearly we could build a better society. We could get better institutions. We could get better politics. We could make humans be more enlightened in the sense that they are more tolerant and more pluralistic, peace-loving and so on and so forth. And in that regard, I think the evidence is essentially they just were completely wrong. There is zero evidence that there has been much progress in the way we humans function. I mean, I know that some people like Steve Pinker disagrees with that and that Pinker thinks that we've been getting better on, on every dimension. But I must say, looking around me, for certainly for the last 10, 15 years, I actually see a very sharp retrogression in political institutions, not just in the United States, but in many countries in which things like tolerance and pluralism are on the defensive. Now, it may be a blip, it may be a trend, who knows? Douglas North once told me, and I think I always remember that he says, Joel, he says, there's a good reason why we economic historians speak of technological progress, but institutional change. And that the word change in some sense says, look, we're not static. There is dynamism there, but it's more like a stationary process. Okay, It's very hard to see a trend and to argue that our institutions are in some sense better than the ones that were extant at the time of Montesquieu and Voltaire, or for that matter, at the time of Julius Caesar. It's very hard to argue that, whether the Chinese emperors of the Song Dynasty were less, in some ways, enlightened than, say, Xi Jinping, or that the Russian Tsar of the time of, you know, even the terrible were any worse than at the time of Vladimir the Terrible, who's in power now. We could go on about this. This is hard to argue. And so I would maintain that in that sense, there's something we can learn from the evolutionary people, which is, yes, there is progress in certain dimension and not in others. And that part of the problem may well be that these dynamics are not in sync with one another. And that creates disequilibria, it creates all kinds of trouble. And I think that is, to some extent, the great dilemma of the modern age, in which our power over nature keeps increasing, but our wisdom and benevolence in handling that power is not. Yeah, so in my classes, there's a natural tendency when you're doing cases in business school, the natural tendency is to look back on managers of previous generations and think that they were somehow less intelligent. And as you point out in the book, the human brain hasn't really changed all that much and human nature hasn't changed all that much. But you are, I think, a big fan of progress. And you do talk about how we did in the West somehow achieve some kind of escape velocity, which allowed us to surpass what you call Cardwell's law. Now, Cardwell's law is a law of diminishing returns or a law where progress 
is going to ultimately run into forces which will undermine progress. And yet we somehow escaped that. Now, there are folks that will point to institutions. You mentioned Doug North. Doug North and Barry Weingast, right, they have a sort of institutional history of progress. Is institutional knowledge, managerial knowledge, social scientific knowledge separate and distinct from the kind of knowledge around conquering nature? Is knowledge about people different in some categorical way from knowledge about things and about the world? In principle, no. In practice, the problem is that the study of society is infinitely more complex and difficult because we humans are damn complicated creatures and our minds have some kind of level of complexity that defies anything that the quantum theorists can think about. So in principle, I think we can, and we've made some progress in understanding certain things about society. Where it gets to be difficult is utilizing that kind of knowledge for terms of policy. And that's where you really start to worry that you have people who basically think, look, we can socially engineer our society and trying to make people better by indoctrinating them, by teaching them, by convincing them, by persuading them. And if all else fails, in by coercing them. And that is, I think, dangerous because what it really says is that there's some social engineer who wants to build a kind of society that is in some sense better. And everything we've seen in the history of the 19th and 20th century, these plans don't work out very well. Stalin and Mao didn't succeed doing it. And I think we in the West are doing a very poor job. We have uh, tried now, certainly since 1945, say, to instill into the a democratic world, a, a set of values that appreciate democracy, that ap- appreciate pluralism, that appreciate religious and ethnic tolerance. You know, the success rate of that has been very partial, and if at all. And we see actual things retrogressing across a whole wide variety of societies. And you don't get that in technological progress, right? Because once a technique is there, you can easily say, well, this works better than that, so let's jump this and keep the first one. In societies, that's much harder to do because any kind of ranking, any kind of sort of measurement of sort of productivity or something like that is fraught with difficulty. So in principle, I would like to think, being a social scientist myself, is that in some sense, we understand society better. And I look at economics today, I'm still very much an active member of an economics department, and clearly, in some ways, we know more than we did at the time when I was a graduate student and studying with people like James Tobin at Yale, and Jim is a great social scientist, but we know more than he did, there's no question about it. Is that going to actually lead to any kind of social progress? I'm very doubtful about that. And I would be very suspicious of anybody, whether he comes from the side of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, or whether he comes from the left side, people who grew up in Marx, and come and tell him, look, and we know so much more than we used to know. Let me show you how to build a better society. And I worry about that. Now, I have no obvious answers how to make a better society. All I can say is, look, we have become more powerful in controlling nature, harnessing it to our needs. That has had major positive consequences. We have doubled life expectancy, cut infant mortality to practically zero. 
We have conquered the vast bulk of diseases that plague mankind since the beginning of the species. And so we've done a lot of good. And people eat better, drink better, are healthier than they have ever been before. These are all tangible results. I look at the prime minister and members of parliament and presidents and judges and laws. And today, as opposed to a century ago, I see very little progress. I see very little advice. And I think Doug would agree with me. I don't know about Barry, but I think most people would agree with me. The evidence for, for institutional progress is very minimal. In fact, if you look at you know where the science is going, I would direct you to, a, to this recent book by Nassimoglu and Robinson called The Narrow Corridor. And what they're basically saying, essentially, is there is a good part in institutions, but it is fragile, it is vulnerable, it is constantly under pressure, and it may not be sustainable. That's scary. In history, it indicates in that direction. I'll give you one example, something I was just preparing a lecture about, so it's sitting fresh in my head. If you look at cities in late medieval and early modern Europe, Many of these cities were remarkably democratic. They hadn't read Enlightenment writers, but they had, you know, they had citizens who, have, you know, who had the right to help determine the laws and the rulers of, the, of their cities. And they were being consulted and they were being represented in the city council. And you could have, you would have thought, gee, this is the beginning of modern democracy. Except it isn't. You know, that by the 17th century, almost all of those cities had been taken over by powerful nobles or very thin, closed uh, uh, oligarchies. You look at Venice, you know, and so in the 14th century, there's what they call the closing of Venice, in which it's an open society, then it closes down, and you get a handful of families who are running the place. In Florence, it's the same story. By the middle of the 16th century, you have the Medici, so basically just dictators. And even in the low countries... That's the case. So, yeah, we see democracy evolving, in, in particularly in Anglo-Saxon and Western countries, but it's constantly under pressure. It's constantly being endangered. And you, nobody can prevent from Italian democracy bringing Mussolini to power in 1922, Weimar democracy bringing Hitler to power in 1933, and similar events seem to be threatened all the time in Hungary, in Poland, in Turkey, in, God forbid, Israel. It seems to be all over the place. I see very little progress there. And it's possible that we social scientists and political scientists know more, but that doesn't guarantee anything like the kind of positive effects we see in physics, in chemistry, and in medicine. That's, I think, a sad conclusion that I'm maybe I'm getting less optimistic as I'm getting older, but, you know, having lived four years under Trump will do that to you. Well, some of those changes in institutions can retard scientific development. Some do not. One of the key questions that you focused on is why England, right? So why was England the place where the Industrial Revolution took place? Because if you think about it in terms of pure knowledge creation, or at least pure scientific knowledge creation, it's not like England was necessarily the leader no. throughout this time period. So is it knowledge creation? Is it knowledge diffusion? Because both of those things are necessary. Why was it England that really was the locus of so much of this technological innovation? So, so this is something I spent much of my adult life thinking about. And I think the last 10 years, or there's some hints of that in my earlier books, but the last years or so I've been 
think about it more and more clearly. And I think I have the answer now, or an answer. Maybe I shouldn't say the answer because, you know, it, it's not one thing is right and everything else is wrong. I'm no longer thinking like that. But I think there is something we have left out in the equation which really matters. And that is that for the vast bulk of major inventions, or what I've called macro-inventions, in addition to the sort of brilliant people who built the first models, came up with the original blueprint, not just James Watson, John Smeaton's of this world, but even people less well-known, but still people who would count as inventors, but that for every one of those inventions, you need skilled workmen and engineers and technicians and mechanics who can build the damn thing, not once, but over and over again, operate it correctly, and most important and least recognized, repair it when it breaks down, which these things always did. These machines, textile machinery, cutting machinery, mills, steam engines, they always break down. You need somebody to fix these things. It's an age before interchangeable parts. So you actually need somebody who, is, who can actually come there with, with a chisel and a file and fix the damn things. And so that takes skills. It takes competence. Mm. And what we have come to conclude, and this is uh, there's a recent paper I have in the JP, which is just about to come out or has just come out, in which we make this point at some length. What Britain has is cadre, a layer of skilled artisans, a few of whom ever took out a patent, few of whom we would call inventors, but they are the guys who make this damn thing work. And the evidence is overwhelming that Britain had far more of those and better ones than almost any uh, continental country, let alone Middle East or China or India. And the basic smoking gun for that is, there's a more evidence that I'm going to talk about today, but the smoking gun for that is that when the continental countries, not just France, but Belgium and the Netherlands and Switzerland and Germany and the Habsburg Empire and even Russia, when these continental countries see what Britain is doing and they say, look, we want to get into this game too, and they buy the machinery from England, and what they all need mm -hmm. is English and Scottish technicians to come and do the work for them. And so between first in the 18th century, and then especially after 1815, after the defeat of the French Empire, thousands and thousands of these British mechanics going all over the European continent and basically training the locals, but also running the machinery. And this really lasts until about, I'd say, 18, maybe 1850, 1860, 1870, something like that. And we know there's all kinds of wonderful stories about these British technicians because they were not well-liked, mostly because many of them were drunkards and they were arrogant <laughs> and they didn't speak the language and so on and so forth. But there are little remnants of that. And so a very good example of that is in a town that's been in the news lately for the wrong reasons, and that's in Donetsk in the mm -hmm. Ukraine. And Donetsk used to be called Yuzovka. And the reason it was called Yuzovka is because of a Welsh engineer who started the iron industry in that place. And his name was John Hughes. And so the town was called Yuzovka after Hughes. And if you go there, which I at the moment recommend against, but if you go there, you, there's a sculpture, there's a statue of John Hughes, which if the crazy uh, Russians haven't torn it down yet, it's still standing. But these 
time, this John Hughes, he came, by the way, he didn't come alone. He brought scores and scores of these local workmen with him because the, the Russians couldn't do that. And so they trained the Russians. First, they built the industry, and then they trained the Russians. And we see these people in Belgium. The lead Belgian industrialist of the 1820s, 1830s was had the very long Belgian name of John Cockrell. And at Thomas Ainsworth and people like that, you see them all over Europe because Britain has these people and the rest of Europe does not. And so in terms of inventing big things, the French were really just as good as the British. A lot of the things that the French invented were, were perfectly workable. And they're really creative people and they probably were on the whole better mathematicians then the British were in the first place and eventually become better physicists. And, and certainly the Germans were better chemists. But what the British had, and this works for a long time for them, is just highly trained artisans and highly trained mechanics, people who could fix things, people who were flexible in their attitude and their competences. And that turns out to be a critical link in this causal chain that people really haven't emphasized enough. There's a literature there, and I should acknowledge it, and we cite it, of course. But basically, I think of all the things that counted, this one has been the least emphasized. So, of course, that raises the next question, which I see somewhere, which is how come Britain had these yeah. skilled mechanics and the other countries did not? Because that's the obvious question. And the answer to that, I think, is actually quite clear and that is that britain got rid of its guild system yeah. roughly speaking it's not clear they didn't get rid of it it got weaker and weaker and what guilds basically did was on the continent is they controlled the training of skilled workers through apprenticeships and in britain the markets for apprenticeship is very free and very loose and very open and so the smartest lads could go to that best artisans and be trained by them. And the best artisan wanted the smartest lads because they were easy to train and they could continue the business. And so there are lots of simple examples for that, but we actually have some mm -hmm. systematic evidence to support that. But basically I would argue that engineers and mechanics and chemists and technicians of any kind, whether they're carpenters or blacksmiths or millwrights, they are not produced in schools. They are not produced in universities. They're produced by other artisans through personal contact, which is called apprenticeship. And apprenticeship is all over the world. This is how people were trained. And what happens in Britain is, for historical reasons, apprenticeship worked much better than anywhere else. And yes, the Continentals know this, because as soon as the French... Revolution occurs, one of the first things that they do is they abolish guilds. And whenever yeah. Napoleon's armies show up in Westphalia, in the Netherlands, in Italy, they abolish the guilds because the guilds are really bad. They are, the guilds are making apprenticeship far more rigid and far less effective and far less flexible than in England. Well, there are a couple of interesting things come from that. Number one, the view of the factory system or the view of industrialization is technology designed by genius operated by idiots. And that's sort of the Marxian view that you reference. And that's clearly a crude simplification, right? There's some truth to it, but you need these skilled folks. And the knowledge that you're describing, and a lot of it's very tacit, right? So it's embodied oh, yeah. and it's not codified. You, so you send the people rather than the guidebooks to oh, yeah. the Donetsk. 
Certainly, it becomes over time, it becomes a little bit less tacit, but certainly until the 1850, much of this stuff is tacit. So you can't learn it from books. You have to actually get the guys to come over there. But of course, it raises another question because we push back causation one more layer. The question is, well, why? Why did the guilds die a, a death so much earlier in England than elsewhere? And you talk a lot about resistance to technological change and resistance to the expansion and diffusion of new knowledge and new techniques. And so when you talk about Cardwell's Law, a big part of that has to do with the active resistance and point to two sources of resistance. One you could think of as more cultural, where people are just, you know, that's that's not the way we do things. And you, you have some wonderful examples, but I see this all the time, of course, in business, where companies just get ambushed because they just can't imagine why anybody would want, say, an electric vehicle. Why would anybody not want to come into the branch and do business in person, right? So a lot of people get caught off guard because it goes contrary to their understanding of the world. But then there's this political economy resistance, and this is sort of the Mansur Olson story. And I guess, you know, one question is, and you talk about this, why can't the political institutions develop Pareto-improving deals where the vested interests kind of get bought out by the people who are going to benefit from the new technologies. Was Britain better at making those deals or is it just that the vested interests had less capacity to stall things? I think so. I think what happens is in, in, in Britain, particularly as the monarchy gets gradually weakened or is less interested in maintaining this, I think you, you get exactly moving it in the opposite direction than much of the continent, because in much of the continent, there's this crystallization of power around guilds, either in Republican areas like the Dutch Republic or in France, where the guilds support the king and the king supports the guilds. Whereas in Britain, even before the Glorious Revolution, okay, these guys are in decline. And I think in large part, it is because of vested interests who feel that the guilds are standing in their ways and are able to get rid of them. Now, that's not at all inevitable. You could think of all kinds of junctures in which this has gone the other, the other way around. If Charles I hadn't been a stubborn idiot, he may have won the, uh, the Civil War, and God knows what could have gone wrong if James II, the Catholic king, he didn't have a son. Yeah, things could have gone the other way around. But certainly by 16, I'd say 1650, 1660, we see these guilds starting to decline, and that accelerates over the 18th century. Now, they, they still exist, but their power of regulating apprenticeship is weakened to the point where there still is a statute of artificers and apprentices in England. And, and so the state, in some sense, regulates it. But in fact, that is purely advisory. The enforcement of that barely exists. And so I think there's something to be said for the sort of openness of this sort of weak economy in which people were basically allowed to do their thing, and so they wouldn't let anybody constrain it in a systematic way. Even if the laws are constraining laws are still on the books, they're not really enforced. I mean, I make this point at some length in the Enlightened Economy, which is even on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, Britain has on the books endless regulations and constraints. And in practice, most people say, ah, you know, what the heck, we just let that go. And then they eventually, what happens is they remove them. So they abolish the usury laws and they abolish mm -hmm. the laws of apprentice. Finally, they get rid of the poor law, which is the biggie. But, but the bubble act, all of those things are being removed because A, they weren't enforced and B, insofar as they were enforced, they were seen to be basically just chains that the economy constrained itself. So Britain, in that sense, is 
following its own sort of unique trajectory, which gives it these advantages. And one of the unintended side effects is that they built this population of high-quality mechanics, that these people were there, there's no question about, because we see them moving to the continent. We don't see many continental apprentices being mechanics being brought to England. That barely happens. In fact, there's case after case in which a major invention is happening on the continent and yet applied in, in, in England. In fact, people say this. There's a quote somewhere in one of my books in which I say, for anything to work perfectly, this is a Swiss guy saying his name escaped me at the moment, but it's somewhere in my book in which he says, this is writing a guy writing in the 1720s. So this is fairly early on. He says, for anything to be perfect, he says, it had to be invented in France and perfected in England. That's what he says. And this is a Swiss guy, so you can't say you can't say that he's not that he's biased toward anybody. But that, that is to some extent what happens. And the nice thing about this story, Greg, is that it doesn't just explain why Britain was first, but why in the long run that was not sustainable. Okay, because eventually the importance of these tacit skills that you mentioned, this dexterity, this ingeniousness that these British guys have, but which is essentially based on dexterity rather than any sort of scientific basis, that cannot keep the thing going. And eventually French engineers and German chemists and even Americans overtake Britain because they realize that by now a good engineer needs to know math and needs to know physics. And in Britain, they're fairly late to recognize that. And so by the late 19th century, you can see Britain's its prominence is still there in these old industries like textiles. But when it comes to the newer industries, they're trying to make it, but they obviously have a hard time competing with the Germans and, and to some extent with the French. So I think this is, so Britain never produces somebody like Rudolf Diesel, who basically invents an entirely new machine on the basis of scientific principles, or a, a Marconi, or Fritz Haber, you know, all of those sort of great guys who took science and applied it in a systematic way. And they, 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 they have a hard time doing that. Now, eventually, of course, they come around, but they are no longer the leader of the technological world. They become an, uh, part of the crowd. And that's an equilibrium. That's normal. That's what you'd expect. So... This advantage that they have is, by its very construction, a temporary thing, which, of course, doesn't take away from their achievement. It just tells you how these historical events come to pass. Now, look, one of the reasons why people are interested in economic history is because they're interested in how it might offer some insights into the present. <laughs> and it seems like the 20th century America is like France and England combined, right? It's the place where we see not only the generation of new scientific knowledge, but also it's the place where that knowledge is put into practice better than anywhere else. And I guess a lot of people, they want to know, right? Is this something which is encountering diminishing returns or are we able to escape from Cardwell's law? So on the one hand, we have innovations like Uber and Uber seem to be able to just steamroll a lot of the vested interests that kind of would get in the way of this new type of innovation. But then there's other instances where we see right? Vested interests able to shut down new innovation. So you talk about how there's an optimal amount of market and an optimal amount of central direction, depending on the industry and the time period. Do you think we, we have that right mix now? 
If I knew what the right mix was, I could answer it. I have no idea. What I know is that the right mix is neither the sort of Stalinist mix in which basically the state does everything and some kind of libertarian cloud cuckoo land in which the state does nothing. I think somewhere in between is the optimum, but I don't know what the optimum is and I don't think anybody else does. The big question about Cardwell's law, I make the point about Cardwell's law that one of the things that will eventually be negated is international competition. That is to say, the Cardwell law holds for a closed economy. So if all the economy does is it comes up with new technologies and the vested interests like to resist it, then eventually it will come to an end and so technological leadership will end. But if this economy is open, then in fact different outcomes can happen because it realizes that it has to compete with others and that may lead to somebody to basically say, look, we can't afford to follow your interest because then these other guys will pass us by. So there's classic cases of that in, in history in which so perhaps the history of Japan is most interesting here because Japan is a classic case of Cardwell's law triumphing throughout Tokugawa, Japan, right? So for 250 years or thereabout, basically there's almost no technological change happening because the vested interests control the country and innovators are essentially resisted. And then all of a sudden Japan wakes up and realizes it's a big world out there and they go, you know, whatever the Japanese equivalence of oive is, they say, look, we better do something. And mm -hmm. damn it, they do. And something similar also much later in a different way happens in China. And some things happen like, things like that happen all over. And I think the United States for the last 50 years has gone through a bunch of these scares. You know, we had the Japanese scares in the 1980s and now we have the Chinese scare and they, who knows what other scare there will be in the future. But basically, as long as there is a world in which a number of Competing centers, I don't want to call them nations because some of them may be more than nations, like the EU, but, but the centers of economic activity compete with other centers, okay? It's, it seems less likely that Cardwell's law will apply. And the classic case in the United States, which is not a case I want to leave it alone, but it is the Sputnik scare of 1957, in which, because the Russians were seen to be pulling ahead of us, which they weren't, but it looked like that. Americans pumped enormous amount of resources into research and development and government agencies that supported one way or another technological progress. And that had obviously major results. And I think the current Chinese care, if it doesn't get derailed, may do the same thing. So as long as the world consists of these competing centers, the EU, there's China, there's Russia, there's us. As long as that competition is ongoing, I actually think that just like in any competitive system, in the end, the result will be some form of progress. Unfortunately, this kind of competition, as we all now know, is anarchic competition in which there is no enforcer of the rules and that sometimes gets off the rails, as happened in 1914 in particular, when the world sort of all of a sudden competition turned into something much uglier. And that's the sort of great danger of these models, but as long as the competition is kept along peaceful lines, it's a source of progress. And I think that's quite, quite patent in 
looking at the historical record, whether we're looking at Britain in the 1780s and 1790s, whether we're worrying about France, or whether you're looking at Imperial Germany, or even in its own distorted way, it's Stalinist Russia. Well, it's hard not to see parallels between what you describe happening in the 18th century and what we see today in a place like Silicon Valley. A lot of people come to Silicon Valley are trying to figure out, well, what's the secret sauce of Silicon Valley? And oftentimes point to the large group of talented technicians and so forth. But also there's this culture, right? And this is what took a long time for me to realize being out here for about 18 years was that the importance of this culture of information sharing and of discovery, right? Where people are constantly mixing and mingling and talking to one another and sharing ideas and sharing insight. And so ideas flow from company to company and people leave companies and start new companies. Do you think that economic historians can continue to ignore culture? Is it inevitable that culture is going to have to be a part of any economic historical project? I think we're already there. There is a whole field of cultural economics. I think we have long abandoned the notion that we can dispense with culture. I think there's more and more people not just trying to acknowledge the importance of culture, but trying to measure it through all kinds of clever ways. And so I can point to this sort of recent research over the last decade of things that people use natural language processing and similar things like it, just trying to figure out what is it that people really believe. Now, of course, it's hard to do because all we have is a written record and we don't know what people said to each other, let alone what they actually thought. But I think people making a real bona fide effort at that. And, you know, there's a whole branch of, say, the economics of religion, which is heavily cultural bias, but there's there's Similar thing, and to what extent all these measurements of trust and the World Value Survey has been used, beaten to the ground almost. So now people are coming to recognize that, that culture really matters. And I'd like to point you to the work of my co-author, Guido Tabellini, for instance, clearly talking about uh, what he calls generalized as opposed to uh, limited morality. To what extent do you believe that there's... The only people that matter are people in your narrow circle, which is limited morality as opposed to some much more open-minded view of equality in what he calls generalized morality. People understand that culture matters. The problem, of course, is that definitions are hard to come by. Measurement is difficult. It's much easier to measure prices and labor force participation, things like that, because we have hard numbers there. With culture, that's hard. But, you know, as Einstein said, you know, not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted. And so economists are moving in that direction. And I'm actually very optimistic. When I was a graduate student, I've got to tell you this, Greg, if you mentioned the word culture in a seminar, you were accused of being a sociologist, which was <laughs> the most insulting thing that could say, besides being called an anthropologist, which is even worse. But today, I think we econ- economics has become much less narrow-minded about that, but maybe because they have been so singularly unsuccessful in explaining so many of the things that they ought to explain. And so now, I think we do culture these days as we damn well should. And we're getting better at measuring it or at least identifying the critical components that really count. I'll give you one example of something that has that really uppermost in my mind and which I wish people would do more with, just as a suggestion for future research. One of the cultural components that I've always believed in 
is the extent to which we are taken by our ancestors. This is to say, to what extent people really feel that the people who came before us were way smarter than we are. And so all you need to know, if you want to know the answer to something, you just need to read their stuff. So this was very much the case, say, in the Middle Ages when Galen, Aristotle. Yeah, you, you go to Aristotle. And the Jewish tradition that I come from, okay, so how would you know the answer to them? Just study the Talmud or the Mishnah or the, the Bible itself. or the, And many cultures have that. China, for instance, you know, reading Confucius, Islamic culture, reading the Quran and the Hadith. So there is this intellectual ancestor worship that many societies are guilty of. And even today in the United States, it isn't quite dead yet. There's still literalist people who think that everything in the Bible is correct. There are literalist jurists who think every word in the Constitution should be, you know, and so But, and say, so culture is important because it measures the degree to which we are guilty of ancestor worship. And it differs a great deal among societies. It differs among individuals. It differs among groups of people. And roughly speaking, I think that is a key to progress. Because if you think that our ancestors, you have this inferiority complex vis-a-vis your ancestors, okay, then you're not likely to be rebellious. And of course, innovation is essentially an act of rebellion, right? You basically say, look, this is the way people always did it. I can do it better. And I think what happens in places like Silicon Valley that you mentioned is essentially there is no ancestor worship. You know, anything that's two years old is obsolete. Well, that may be a little bit overdoing it, but my wife says, you know, is an uh, immunologist. And basically she says, you, God, I don't read. By the time the papers appear in print, they're obsolete. <laughs> thing that's five years old is way old hat. And that, I think, is a mark of progress. And in fact, we can, to some extent, measure that by looking at the age of citations. There are tricks of getting around that. But essentially, one of the key events in Europe in the late closing years of the Middle Ages and early modern Europe is that the abandonment of intellectual ancestor worship. Now, no economist would actually disagree with that. And so once they agree with me on that point, they have admitted that culture matters. Well, while it might be the case that some books and articles that are two years old are no longer relevant, your books, <laughs> I have to say, are still relevant, even though some of them are more than 20 years old. So I don't know I where hope. people should begin. Perhaps begin with The Gifts of Athena. I still really love this book, but there's plenty more this. books including yes, the culture I of growth. Love, I love the gifts of Athena is my favorite child. I wrote it at the Center for uh, Advanced Studies at Stanford, which was the best year of my life. Well, thanks so much, Joel, for joining me. Really appreciate it. Hope to see you again soon. My pleasure, Greg. Good luck to you and all the best. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.